This is Line Upon Line, brought to you by It Is Written. And the best person to get an answer like that from would be Jesus. At Line Upon Line, we answer your Bible questions. Thanks for submitting them. In addition to that answer, open the book of Revelation. God wants you to be ready for the second coming of Jesus. And He wants you to have assurance about being ready for the second coming of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on Line Upon Line. I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, and with me, my friend and colleague, Eric Flickinger. Eric, thanks for joining me here Good today. Good to be here today. And we have the opportunity now to answer questions, your questions. Thanks for getting them to us. If you'd like us to answer a question that's burning a hole in your mind, then uh, email us, lineuponline at iiw.org. Lineuponline at iiw.org. We'll waste no time. We'll get right into it. Eric, first question is from Gary. And his question reads uh, as follows. It is said we will all take account for each one of us. What does that mean for each of us Christians? I'm, I'm thinking... He's referring to giving account. I, I think so. Okay. And, and that's true. We will, each one of us, give account of ourselves to God. Uh, one of the verses that leaps to mind is over in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 14. If you take a look at verses 10 through 12, in Romans 14, verses 10 through 12, it says this, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set it not thy brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Verse number 12 says, so then every one of us shall give account of himself to God. You know, in, in this life, there are a lot of unanswered questions. We get dealt wrong. People say things to us, do things to us, and, and life is unfair. It is. It life is. is unfair. And a lot of times it seems like the bad guys get off scot-free. But one day, each one of us is going to be held accountable for the things that we have said, the things that we have done. Dive a little deeper into that. The Bible tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, for God will bring into judgment, God will bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. Bottom line, there's going to be a judgment day one day. And we will, as it were, stand before God. I'm not suggesting we'll all be trotted out to stand in the presence of God, but our case will be decided by God, whether we're spending eternity with him or whether it's eternity in the darkness of eternal midnight. So, judgment time. Now look, if you choose Jesus as your Lord and Savior, judgment is essentially over for you because now you receive the righteousness of Christ. He takes away your sin. You are a saved child of God. We'll have to give account of ourselves. Sure we will. The Bible is simply saying there'll be a judgment day one day. And if you want to be on the right side of the judgment, and you do, be sure you have claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you'll be okay. Now let's move on. Question from... John, when we finally get to stay in heaven, what will we Christians do throughout eternity? Well, short answer is a lot. Yeah, uh, we can't even lot. begin to contemplate how long eternity is. Um, over in the book of uh, Revelation, chapter 14 and verse 4, speaking of, uh, of the 144,000, of some of the righteous, most certainly, says they're going to follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Imagine that. How, where do you think Jesus might go in eternity? Hey, here's Isaiah 65 and verse 21. It says, And they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat the fruit of them. Heaven isn't about inactivity. It's activity. Uh, you know, I remember as a kid wondering why we need to live forever. And it's not about the quantity. It's about the quality. Mm. It really is. Uh, 
But imagine in, in heaven going to the places you want to go, meeting the people you want to meet, developing the talents that you want to develop. And that's just from a very earthly point of view. You get to be with Jesus in the presence of God. You hang out with angels. Whatever that actually means in practice, for we've never physically done that like we're going to do it then. Eternity is going to be a busy, busy time. You're going to love it. If you like animals, you don't want to miss out on this. In Isaiah chapter 11, beginning in verse number 6, it says this, The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall feed, the young ones shall lie down together, the lion will eat straw like the ox. And then to put this in perspective, the next two verses say that the sucking child shall play on the hole of the asp, the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den, they shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So this Amen. is an incredible grouping of pets for a little child to be a, a wolf and a young lion and a fatling and a bear and a lion. An incredible group of pets. So if you like if you like animals, don't miss out on heaven. You know, the Bible says, I have not seen nor ear heard. It hasn't even come into the hearts of, of us what God has prepared for those who love him. It's going to be astonishing. We cannot give you a blow-by-blow -blow description of heaven and what eternal will be like because the Bible only gives us a uh, a little shade here and another shade over there. You put a few of those shades together, they start to make some pretty colors. Heaven is best experienced rather than expressed. When you experience heaven, you're going to say, oh my goodness, if only I'd known. See, if only I'd have known, might have lived my life a whole lot differently. Okay, I have a question here. This refers to a, a, a series of programs, uh, of, of it is written programs we did. In your 500 program. This must be speaking to me. You said that not much has changed since the Reformation, and you showed a picture of President Obama with the Pope. What did you mean by that? During the Reformation, the Popes ruled supreme as God in the earth. No one who was a ruler of any nation, I shouldn't say any nation, but those under the jurisdiction of the papacy did anything without referencing the Pope. He ruled supreme. His influence was enormous. And I recall that program. I believe that was our program on the Counter-Reformation. Uh, I said something along the lines of uh, the Reformation brought about some much needed change. And that secondly, it could be said that not much has changed. That is, the Popes of Rome still rule with an enormous amount of influence. You know, when CNN, the television network, got together and did a series on the popes, they called the pope, whoever the pope was, the most powerful man in history. So back then, when Martin Luther rose up against the power of the papacy, uh, the popes were the most powerful people in existence. Today, not much has changed. If you are the president of a country like the United States, then you still reference the Pope of Rome in much of what you do. He still has an enormous amount of influence. And I don't believe that we said that was necessarily good or necessarily bad. That would be for you in the context of that program and the others that followed to decide. If you'd like to see our programs from that series 500, get on over to our website, itiswritten.com and you can see them there. 
Another question. I'm 61 years old, and one of my biggest struggles has been in the area of trust. At times, I tend to give up too easily. What can I do? I'm thinking Mary is talking about trusting God. Yeah, trust is something that takes time to develop. It's not something that happens instantaneously, especially if people have let you down before. Now, right. we don't know exactly what, uh, what Mary, your background is, but typically, if somebody has mistreated you, has broken your heart, has broken their word to you, it becomes more difficult to trust others. But there's something significantly different between a person who may have wronged you in the past and God. Last time I checked, the Bible says that God will never leave us nor forsake us. We can trust him. I'm with Eric on this. Not that you'd be surprised about that. If you're dealing with trusting people, you know, you ought to have some question marks about whether or not you can trust people. Some people can't be trusted. But can God be trusted? That's the question that you want to answer. If he can, how do you trust him? You just do. Uh, it, it depends on your circumstances. Let's say you need money to get the rent paid. You've had bills to pay. There's not enough left to pay the rent. You're trusting in God to provide for your needs. Go to the Bible and read those stories where God uh, came through for people who trusted them. Go to the verse in the Bible that says, My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. That's Philippians 4 and verse 19. Go to the verses where the Bible tells us that, that God will direct our paths. They're in Proverbs chapter 3. Find those verses and take them to God and say, this is what the Bible says. I've never found a reason to distrust you. The Bible points to your faithfulness. Even in the book of Lamentations, great is thy faithfulness, speaking that the, the mercies of God are new every morning. So, so when you get into the Bible, you see fulfilled prophecy. You see the way Jesus treated people, the way Jesus lifted people up. And you say, God loves me. I believe, Mary, if you are convinced in the love of God, you'll be able to trust God because you'll know that God can be trusted. Eric, this next question could keep us going for a while. I want to turn to it here and read it from my page. Uh, I guess it's way up here. And the question is from Rita. Is the Trinity a Catholic teaching? There's been a lot of discourse, a lot of uh, disagreement about the topic of the Trinity in Christianity today. Sometimes it should we even use the word Trinity sure. because there are some implications with the word Trinity that a lot of people aren't even aware of. Uh, you also, we also talk about the Godhead or the triune God. Are they all the same? Are there some nuances and difference? But the understanding of the Trinity in Catholicism is a little different. It, it, it is. Firstly, let me say this. Uh, is the Trinity a Roman Catholic teaching? Point number one, it doesn't even matter. What matters is if it's true. Roman Catholics believe a lot that is solid and biblically based. If you are not a Roman Catholic, you would say, my goodness, they believe a lot that's not. Well, you, you should say that. If you didn't believe that, you'd be one. But Roman Catholics believe plenty that is um, in association with the Bible. Now, I don't want you to think I'm giving Catholics or anybody else a free pass. What I'm saying is this. Just because something is Catholic or Baptist 
or Pentecostal or Methodist or Adventist or Mormon or whatever else doesn't mean it's wrong. What matters is, is it biblical? Is it biblical? So from a biblical point of view, uh, what is believed by most Protestants about the Trinity is that there are three persons that comprise one God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. The Holy Spirit is God. Uh, it, I don't know how much time we need to spend on that because it's really fairly obvious. Jesus spoke about his Father. Uh, he was going to his Father, his Father in heaven. This is God. Jesus is God. He said as much. The Holy Spirit is God because we know he can be grieved. We can sin against the Holy Spirit and so on. So what most Protestants would believe is that the Trinity, the Godhead, is a unity of three co-eternal persons. The Father exists and has already existed. The Son is a separate being. In him is life original unborrowed and underived. He has always been and he will always be. The spirit has always been and will always be. It's a mystery. We are talking about God. You don't even know how your cell phone works or your microwave works. And yet you expect that we should understand every last detail about the working of God. There's a little bit of mystery involved here. So, is the Trinity a Catholic teaching? Well, well, yes, inasmuch as the Roman Catholic Church teaches the Trinity. But does that mean that anyone who believes in the doctrine of the Godhead or in the doctrine of the Trinity is believing a Catholic teaching? No. Number one, you believe a Bible teaching. And number two, I don't believe that most Protestants would agree with the Trinity doctrine as proposed by the Roman Catholic Church that Jesus is being generated by his Father. I find nothing in Scripture to suggest that that is so. All right, we'll be back with more questions in a moment. In the meantime, get your questions to us. The email address is lineuponline at iiw.org, and we'll be right back. My mom woke up at 11.45 and she smoked smoke. About maybe 1.30 in the morning, the, uh, my wife got a phone call and I could hear the voice on the other end of the line and she was basically uh, screaming, there's a fire, it's massive, it's headed your way. You need to get out and get out now. After I hear fire, I hear in the background, the fire is two to four blocks away from your house. And I panicked, we started praying. Our prayers didn't last long. They were desperate, they were, they were rushed, there was a need, it was urgent, it was very, very urgent. I said, please save my children. Where was God when the fires burned? Where was God as people suffered? Where was God while people were dying? Where was God in the midst of the devastation? I'm John Bradshaw from It Is Written, inviting you to join me for 500. Nine programs produced by It Is Written, taking you deep into the Reformation. This is the 500th anniversary of the beginning of the Reformation, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, Germany. We'll take you to Wittenberg and to Belgium, to England, to Ireland, 
to Rome, to the Vatican City, and introduce you to the people who created the Reformation, who pushed the Reformation forward. We'll take you to sites all throughout Europe where the Reformers lived and in some cases died. We'll bring you back to the United States and take you to a little farm in upstate New York and show you how God spread the Reformation here. Don't miss 500. You can own the 500 series on DVD. Call us on 888-664-5573 or visit us online at itiswritten.shop. Thank you for remembering that It Is Written is a faith-based ministry. And it's your support that makes it possible for us to share God's good news with the entire world. Your tax-deductible gift can be sent to the address on your screen or through our website, itiswritten.com. Thank you for your continued prayerful support. Our toll-free number is 800-253-3000. 800-253-3000. Our web address is itiswritten.com. Welcome back to Line Upon Line with Eric Flickinger. I'm John Bradshaw. We're answering your Bible questions and we're thankful to have this opportunity to do so. Genesis 8 and verse 20 says, Noah sacrificed one of each of the clean animals. How do they procreate then? The question is from Christy. Fortunately, that's not what exactly the Bible says. So what does the Bible say? We go back a chapter to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7 verses 1 and 2. And it says that the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, sevens. the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Many people are surprised to find that Noah took some animals into the ark by sevens. I mean, from the time that we were knee-high to a grasshopper, we've, we've sung the songs. We've been told that they went in two by two. That's right. And technically, yes, the unclean did go in two by two. But the clean went in by sevens. A couple of reasons for that. One of them is to sacrifice afterwards. They would need to have something once the ark came to rest to sacrifice and if you end up sacrificing one of them, as the, uh, as the writer of the question put in, you don't have too much left of that particular species. Right. Second reason, there wasn't a whole lot of vegetation left on the earth after the flood. And up to that point, God had only said, you can eat the fruits and the vegetables and the grains and so forth. It was only after the flood that God permitted the consumption of meat. And again, uh, if man had eaten, if Noah and his family had eaten one of the unclean animals, that species would be gone. But God said, take the clean in by seven so you'd have something to eat and something to sacrifice. How many wise men were there uh, at, at, at the birth of Jesus or, or after the birth of Jesus? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. The Bible doesn't seem to give a real good answer on it, though. No, and did the wise it, men visit Jesus at the stable? That's what a lot of people seem to think, but it uh, doesn't appear that way in the Bible. No, the Bible talks about the wise men visiting uh, the family of Jesus in a house. It was yeah. after the fact of the birth. So what it demonstrates is that we kind of believe what we're told and we... Yeah don't always have the benefit of having been told what the Bible says. That's right. A question from Jude. I'm very discouraged by much of what I see in my church. Should I leave the church? Jude, maybe. Maybe you should have left long ago. But here's what it depends on. It doesn't necessarily depend on whether you're discouraged by what you see. It depends on what your church is teaching. If your church is teaching the truth of the Bible, 
if your church keeps the commandments of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ, if your church fits into Revelation chapter 14, verse 12, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus, why would you leave? Now, it may be that there are some untenable situations in the church. So let's suggest there are. Maybe it's not good for your mental, emotional, spiritual, or even physical health to be there. Then by all means go, but go and find another congregation that teaches what you teach and be there. The Bible says God has a remnant in earth's last days and you want to be where the remnant is. So if you have to drive 10 minutes to another church, do that half an hour, an hour. Drive three hours if you have to because worship is important. I'm not capping it at three hours, maybe further. But if you're saying what so many people say, I don't like the color of the carpet. I don't like the way the pastor's wife acts. There are some cranky people. I don't like the preaching. Um, what else? You've never heard any of this, so just imagine if you would. Oh, you've got people who are upset because somebody treated them disrespectfully, said the wrong thing to them, insulted their child. The list goes on and on and on. Our church isn't active doing what our church should be doing. Our pastor doesn't seem to believe the message of the Bible like I believe he should. There are some political issues swirling around our church, and I'm just bothered by them. Let me promise you something. You'll be bothered by a whole lot more before Jesus comes back. Earth is not heaven. The church is not the promised land. Um, how, about, how about this? How about you pray? Pray for the people who are bothering you. Pray for the situations that are really distressing you and be the change that you want the church to be. There are some churches that have been dysfunctional for decades. Sure there are. You know, pastors come and go, families come and go, issues come and go. If you are going to be a person who leaves the church over some political issue, you've just made yourself a really easy target for the devil. He didn't even have to work hard on you. He couldn't get you involved in adultery. He couldn't get you involved in drugs and alcohol. He couldn't get you involved in crime. You didn't murder anybody. He couldn't get you out of the church that way. All he did was he made you angry. Upset. What was the word? Uh, I am very discouraged by much of what I see. So, so you're so discouraged, you left the church? Did the truth change? Did the Bible change? Jude, what are you thinking? No, go to God and pray. Pray. Jude, take a bad situation and make it better. Hey, Jude, take a sad song and make it better. Pray and expect God to turn this thing around. If you're going to get blown out of the church by some discouragement, and, and again, hey, Eric, it's important that we don't trivialize or minimize this. Absolutely. There's, the church has imperfect people in it. Pe people are imperfect. I, I, I'm, right I'm there, in a church. Right there. <laughs> Case in point. Case right in there. point. And think about even Jesus' wait, church. Wait, 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 wait. I've set you up. Right there, there's one of them. There's one over here, yeah, too. Yeah, and, and right here, there's another one, you understand. So wherever you look, you're going to see people and, and whatnot. Sorry, go, go right here. Think about Jesus' church. Even Jesus' church with the 12 apostles was not perfect. Now, with their imperfections, you had Peter, you had James and John. They had some attitude problems. You had uh, Judas, who was stealing the, the money from the from the offering plate, if you will. And, and some of these attitude problems, if I might, 
These brothers were wanting to call fire down from heaven and burn people up. That's an attitude problem. Those are serious attitude problems. But even with all those problems in the church, I don't know about you, but I still would have stuck with Jesus' church. If he was the pastor, I'm there, even if there are some issues. Here's what's going to happen. If we're looking for a church that is perfect, full of perfect people, if I went and joined that perfect church, everybody else would have to leave because I just made the church imperfect. Amen. I'm far from it. So you're going to find issues within the church. You're going to find people who have issues within the church. But look at what the church teaches. Look at what it's practicing. And that's where you want to stay. Help us to make this clear by listening as clearly as you can. If a situation is unhealthy, damaging spiritually, maybe you need to take a rest. But you don't want to leave God's church and leave Jesus over discouragement and disappointment because people are going to do that to you all day long. Jude, thanks for the question. I hope you heard the answer. I think we've got time for one more question, Eric. From Gail, have you heard about the book, The Shack? I have. I have too. We we both heard about it? Heard about it. We have heard about the book, The Shack. Uh, Here's another one. Does the law of God categorize into two, the moral law and ceremonial law? Could we read or see it laterally in any version of the scripture? We didn't have a whole lot of time, so let's be somewhat quick here. You're not going to see it laterally. I I guess you mean one beside the other. You won't find the moral law here in the Ten Commandments. They're one after the other or side by side. But you do find in the Bible, it's very, very clear that there's moral law and ceremonial law. The moral law we would call the Ten Commandments, the law of God, Exodus chapter 20. You can also read them in Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Ten Commandments, the moral law. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 10 and 11, he makes it pretty clear that there are two separate and distinct laws. He says, neither have we obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, that would be God's laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. Yea, all Israel have transgressed thy law, again, God's law, Sure. even by departing that they might not obey thy voice. Therefore, the curse is poured upon us and the oath that is written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, because we have sinned against him. So a moral Ten Commandment law, God's law, and a ceremonial law often called Moses law. The difference between the two? Well, God's law was written with his finger and it was written on stone. You also find that Moses law, the ceremonial law, was handwritten by Moses, it was placed in a book and placed in the side of the Ark of the Covenant, whereas the Ten Commandments were placed inside the Ark of the Covenant. So big difference between those two laws. Very, very clear distinctions given for different purposes, both given by God. One written with the finger of God, by God on the stone, another given by God through Moses and he wrote in that book. All from God for different purposes. We would believe the ceremonial law doesn't, isn't binding today. Remember when Jesus died on the cross, he says in Mark 15 and verse 38 that the veil in the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. This is God saying, the sanctuary services, we're done with them now. The sacrificial system, it's over. And it was given for a time and it was given to point to Jesus. Speaking of time, I think we're out of it. Have to do this again sometime. We're out of it. We're out of time. Eric, thanks for joining me. And thanks for joining us. Please know we'd love to answer your Bible questions. You can get them to us by emailing us, line upon line 
at IIW.org. With Eric Flickinger, I'm John Bradshaw. We are both grateful that you've joined us. God bless you. We'll see you next time.